Welcome to the Everything Will Be Okay podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Simonov. Well, listeners, this is the 16th and final episode of the first season of this podcast, and I'm thrilled to be here. It's been it's been cool. Like I've obviously been speaking with people since since the end of March, um, and I've been releasing these episodes since May on a fairly regular basis, and what has been the, the you know i i have this constant thread i have this thematic question that i ask every guest at the end of every show which is will everything be okay and i of course asked that in the context of a global pandemic um, and the fact that the performing arts are suffering incredibly um, during this time and everyone says yes it will be okay and they say it enthusiastically and with very little hesitation um, they've added caveats some of them they say it'll be okay but it'll take a lot of work to get there or it will be okay but uh but it won't be as it was before it won't be going back to anything um before the pandemic it'll be okay it'll be different but it'll be okay and that's fine i i understand that um and i think that I think I actually believe it now. I didn't believe it back in March, and I just sort of chalked it up to people being optimistic for the public eye um, because it made them look um, more appealing, you know, that whole thing that people do in interviews. But I I do think that I, I'm coming around to the idea. I'm not such a cynical beast anymore these days. Um, I think that I've recognized that going cold turkey from the performing arts. Um, Of course, there's streaming and there are online options, but I mean, you know, live in the room with somebody performing arts. Going cold turkey on that has actually been really good. And it's this weird, I'm not going to compare it to like addiction or anything, but it, it has this sort of healing effect to have it sort of have this real big part of my life. I, I made it a big part of my life and intertwined it with my personality. And to have that thing sort of ripped away from you with very little warning or heads up, um, it's it was tough. Of course, everyone found it tough. And I didn't even, I wasn't even suffering professionally from it directly, like like a lot of my guests have been. Um, but you know what? All that time off, all that space, all that silence has been like this amazing cleansing thing you know and it's given us you know all the noises calmed down so we've we've met our new selves we've you know these really artsy people I know I'm not alone these people that just sort of combine their lives with their work in this beautiful way that's very very passionate and very noble sounding but it can be a little bit unsustainable and unrealistic Um, all these people all of a sudden had silence where there had been noise and that silence made room for um for a lot of things and i include in that the resurgence of the black lives matter protests and um and noticing how opera companies were responding to social um social trends basically and how some companies were not or how the industry was not um i think what's happened is that opera has has joined the general public <laughs> you know it's it's now responsible for itself in the same way that a lot of other industries have been and and opera has had this sort of exemption because it's lived largely off the internet and um under the auspices of people 
who are, you know, older and richer than, say, a lot of you, you guys listening right now. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I, I think the, the floodgates have been opened for kind of like democracy in opera. Opera is one of those things that creates for itself a little world, a little bubble. Um, it's a small world and it's, it's amazing and full of extraordinary people, but it is sort of this small little bubble. And there are, there are lots of those in, in life, of course. But I think, again, this sort of space, this silence has given people the, the sense of a, of a bigger picture. And with that, um, they're sort of growing wise and impatient to a lot of the bullshit that happens in these industries, particularly among in the worlds of the large organizations. So people are not forgiving anymore of a company that does very little or nothing in response to major, major social events, major political events. Um, for companies that sort of put the blinders on and, and keep trucking ahead as though nothing has changed, perhaps because for the wealthy white people who run that company, very little has changed right now. And I think that that's obviously bullshit. And I think that a lot of people are realizing it's bullshit. And some people are talking about it on the record about how it's bullshit. And it's empowering all these wonderful, no bullshit allowed people. And by those people, I mean the artists, the, the creators, like the designers, the singers, you know, the, the up and coming conductor, like the assistants, all that stuff, all the people that are working so hard to put the stuff up on the stages for these companies. And they're historically, you know, they've got the, the least power, they're paid the least, that kind of thing. They're historically, they've been peons, they've been replaceable, disposable, because it's a competitive industry. And if you don't want to put up with bullshit at work, there's someone behind you who will because they want the job. I think people are newly wise to that because there have been these um, conversations happening, you know, panels about race in the opera industry, for example. They've been happening is sort of without the usual fear of professional, I don't know, retaliation, I guess, because they've already lost it all. So like, what else is there to lose? And that's a terrible situation for for a working artist to be in. And I don't wish poverty or or you know anything like that on them but i think it's incredible that there's been room and there's been a bit of freedom and there's been this this power handed over by at least some opera companies to the artists that make their work for them to say hey what do you think is how do you like this industry when we when we get back to the stage assuming that'll happen at some point in the future how do we do better what what kind of place do you want to work at and these questions, I can't ever remember them being asked in any, in any sense of honesty, ever. Because it's always just been, even when I was taught, which was not that long ago, I was taught that you say yes to everything and you acknowledge the fact that you're going to take these shitty gigs sometimes and you're going to have to work your way up. And, and that was some sort of noble feat. You were some sort of martyr. And martyrdom is very, very passe these days. I think people have a sense of community like they never had before because of this global thing that's happening to everybody. And and I think that 
there's obviously power in numbers and there are definitely more people who are vying to make opera and to keep it relevant and to keep it a part of of the 21st century society. Uh, there are more of those people than there are people who dig in their heels and say, this is what opera is, this is who I'm going to hire, and these are the people I'm going to listen to to make my decisions. Um, I think that kind of opacity and I think that kind of... Um, patting on the head, a very condescending kind of treatment of the artists themselves is is not going to fly anymore. And and guys, I really the work that's being done is so extraordinary and I think the ultimate test of it will be when stages are safely open again uh, and people can start going back to work, the big test will be, will they keep up this sort of strong rhetoric, these ideals that everyone has discovered they all hold? People don't want to see just one black person in a rehearsal room anymore, and they don't want to rehash the same 10 operas by the same three dead white guys anymore. When they get back to work, if artists can still stick to their guns and you know, and maintain this sort of amazing trajectory, it'll signal that there is no fucking fear of the dinosaurs in this industry, that the art is better than the people who have been running it, and it's time for some fucking change, and I want to see some goddamn shows that make me feel something, and that's only going to happen if it makes me feel like I'm being told a real true story about people who exist, lots of people who exist, and they don't look like me, and they don't have the same life experience as I do, and that's how I learn and become an empathetic consumer of the arts. That's not as fancy as a fucking donor party after an opening night of Anna Bolena, sponsored by, you know, rich doctor and mrs rich white couple i don't know they're not all bad i've met doctors and mrs rich white couples and some of them are a hoot i think you guys know what the point is that i'm trying to make there's democracy afoot i think that there's the opportunity for really exciting art when it's safe to do it and i will be there in the front row with bells on clapping my face off because democratic opera is my jam I've learned this in the pandemic. My guest for this uh, season finale, I guess, of the Everything Will Be Okay podcast is a fantastic man named Asita Tenekun. He's a tenor. He's based in Toronto. Uh, he's born in Sri Lanka. And he's, like, really making waves. He's he's having breakout roles. Um, for example, his role in Tapestry Opera's production of Rocking Horse Winner, which is going to come up again, so, you know, put a pin in that. And he's also doing some really provocative writing on his blog. If you head over to vandalprobe.com, so W-A-N-D-E-L-P-R-O-B-E.com, uh, and then just click on the blog, you'll see some pretty, uh, pretty timely topics, like the pay structure of modern singers and how it's garbage. Or, you know, what it means to be a quote-unquote Canadian opera company um, by name or by mission. Um, And, you know, the fact that silence from the opera industry on major issues like, you know, racial discrimination and systematic racism, uh, 
the silence is pretty crappy. I, I agree wholeheartedly, and it's really exciting to hear, to read um, this kind of cr- critique of the industry by a working singer who's, who is currently working and like, you know, not, he's even got some of the very coveted um, pandemic gigs that, you know, few and far between, but he's doing some work during this um, horrendous time for the arts. So he's, he's working, he's not removed himself from the industry, he's not in this sort of safety net um, that I that I took before starting to criticize the industry. I, I stopped working in it before I really let loose on Shmapra. But Asita is doing it at the same time as being a professional. He's demanding he's demanding more of of his work environment and he's valuing himself. For too long, young singers have been encouraged to devalue themselves um, because that's just how the industry works. Um, and that's this disgusting cyclical thing that will never stop unless someone does what Asita is doing which is saying no no I'm a I'm a professional at my job pay me like a professional at my job or you know if you're a large Canadian arts organization sucking up a lot of grant funding you know be a large Canadian arts organization and reflect your country um yeah Anyway, I I digress. I I'll spoil the whole chat if if I continue going the way I am. So um, on to my wonderful conversation with fantastic tenor writer person Asita Tenekun. And guys, thanks for listening to the Everything Will Be Okay podcast. How 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 are you doing with everything? What's your day to day like these days? Um, things are good. I think if you asked me that question about a month ago, I wouldn't have had a clear answer. I think it's been interesting just because uh, obviously getting into stuff when things shut down in March, uh, nothing looked positive. And then after that, for a couple of months, it was very much, you know, one week was, okay, I'm riding a little bit of a wave. I kind of have an idea of what I need to do. And then the next week would be like, oh, wait, no, I don't. Um, so, uh, so it's been an interesting few months, but, uh, I think since September hit, I've tried to gain some focus. And I think a big part of what's helped me with that was to just acknowledge that I would be, I would be having a break in August in a usual year, in a normal year. So I tried to build in some time off and uh, I think that helped a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think there's a huge problem with with having a little bit too much time for everyone to think. You know. Yes, that is that's that's true. I think, I mean, it comes down to with so many things happening and so many things being uncertain. It's like, what do we spend our time thinking about as well? Because there are lots of things that there are lots of opportunities for things to be different. And so I've been yeah. trying to focus on that, but you know, it's all—it's always a challenge, right? When the way when life as you know it just ceases, uh, all of a sudden, it's—it's uh, it's easy to focus on uh, on what isn't there anymore. So. Oh, for sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so have there been any specific projects that you've been particularly sorry to see go because of cancellation? Yes. I mean, when everything shut down, I was getting ready for two St. John Passions, 
which uh, mm. which was really disappointing because I love I love performing that piece. I think it's probably one of my favorites. I was doing the evangelist stuff for it, and um, yeah. and then after that it was going to be Rocking Horse, which we didn't get to perform, of course, um, in a theater. But uh, thankfully, we we did the rehearsals online, tried to figure out what the next steps would be, and ended up uh, doing an album of it. So that yeah, was... that's become like a really amazing, just sort of lemonade out of lemons kind of thing. Totally, and I think I mean that's very much uh, with Tapestry. I mean, Tapestry has kept me really relatively busy. Uh, thankfully, over the course of the last few months, with their box concerts as well, uh, which has been great. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I think there are there are opportunities to make the best of any situation if you're willing to think outside of the box. I think. Yeah, I mean that's been the big test, and I mean it's funny because you know I thought about this back in March, but like opera as an industry has not always been synonymous with like innovation. Right. Although we all know corners of the opera world that, that's definitely very innovative, like tapestry is a perfect example, right? Right. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's one of the things. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that baffles me when I just take a step back from the industry and look at it. I'm like, you have this art form that brings together so many different art forms as well, and if. I feel like if if each of those things is just allowed to to have a natural sense of expression, I feel opera can be that place that actually leads when it comes to innovation. And so, I, I don't know. I hope once things get back to quote unquote normal, um, we'll be able to allow the art form itself to to not just not just exist, but actually thrive and and take a leading um, a leading position in how the arts itself can be shaped. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it, it that I mean it makes me think of a point that you made in one of your blog posts, which we will get into in a little bit. But uh -huh. um, how you you were basically saying this was it wasn't quite the same context, but you were basically saying that you know companies are now going to need the artists who are local, right? Right. The, the, you know, there's, especially in larger companies, it's very common for it to be an international casting situation, which is not a bad thing, uh -huh. but it does sometimes mean that, that stories that are happening about the community don't always get shown on the large stages in those communities, right? Right. But now I think whether it's because of travel restrictions or budget or what, um, yeah, like you said, like these, especially the large companies, it'll be a stark difference that they're going to have to rely perhaps on local artists and local stories. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, not just, not just for new pieces either. I mean, if you, if you look at performing the canon with artists you have in and around the theater, those are also artists who have connections with the community. So you, you have a better chance of actually getting in audiences you may not have gotten by having international artists there. Um, and yeah. I, I don't know, I, I mean, think there are lots of opportunities. I think it's good to have international artists, of course, but also to keep in mind that you're serving the community that is immediately around you in order to fill your seats. Yeah, 
So if the if international artists yeah. don't resonate with with uh, communities who don't have that much exposure to opera, then what exactly whom whom exactly are you catering to? So I think that's an important thing. Yeah, to it's always into. Yeah, it's it's always interesting. I, I always wonder, you know, how, about marketing campaigns, especially for um, productions of, you know works from the canon, like something like the Magic Flute or, you know, Marriage of Figaro or something. Um, you know, Marriage of Figaro is a little easier because there's always been class struggle is very universal. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are those those pieces that are, you know, for the opera fanatics, it's a little bit about name dropping, you know, like you want to hear so-and-so sing this role right. for the first time or, you know, you want this sort of combination of artists. And that doesn't really translate to someone who obviously doesn't have this weird, you know, nerdy loyalty to opera the way someone like I do. Right. Like, and so, you know, I wonder, like, would it be easier to sell, um, say, a magic flute if the cast looked like the community around the theater? And I feel like it, there's a way to work around it that, where it doesn't have to be an either or situation. I mean, you can have a couple of big name artists and also really fill your season with other artists who are part of your community as well. Um, And I think it's not, depending on the company, depending on the budget, uh, it's easy for, you know, a larger company to be like, okay, let's get, these five international artists to come and perform this piece. Uh, But, you know, you have a small group of people, like you said, who actually know, who are invested in opera and have been invested in opera, who will enjoy that. But you're not going to draw in any new audiences. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't really need to convince those people who are already invested. Right. Right? Because they're going to go. I mean, have you ever come up, just in your own personal stuff, you don't need to give details or anything, but have you ever come up against a hurdle like that? Like someone's, you know, not necessarily willing to give you a Tamino or a Tito or, or any of these sort of canonical roles? Um, not particularly. I haven't. Uh, I'm trying to think of any similar situation, but uh, yeah, I'm blanking at the moment. Well, I think you've also, you know, you've been working with the work that I see that you're doing has been really exciting and forward looking, like, mm-hmm. like Rocking Horse winner, I would call like sort of a breakout role for you even, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's been wonderful. I mean, I've been getting a lot of new music things just because um, I, I learn stuff quickly and I, and I sight sing uh, pretty well. Uh But that also comes up when I think about one of the drawbacks with the way people view a career as well. It's like, it's easy to pigeonhole someone. Oh, that person only does newer stuff or that person only works with like such and such company. So uh, Mm -hmm. let's go with someone else. And I think in that respect, there needs to be just a wider a more open view of the fact that just because someone does a lot of new music, that doesn't mean that they don't want to do or that they can't do any of the other repertoire. 
Yeah, it's so fun. Like new music, it has to be the most like self-fulfilling thing. Like it's it's great because uh, yeah, like someone people at the folks at Tapestry Opera, they want to know that their people can learn you know new stuff quickly and not be freaked out about it, right? Right. And so the people who do who do that well once, they tend to get asked back and back um, because it makes a lot of sense. And then inevitably they're like, oh, this person is per- pursuing a career in, in only new music. And, and you almost right. have to fight for your for your Mozarts or something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I yeah. think just... Be- well, I mean, ironically, like... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Go for it. Well, I mean, ironically, like... It's it's almost like the the pool of artists that companies again because of travel restrictions or anything you know tangentially pandemic related, you know people companies are going to have to start looking more locally. So you might decide that that's a smaller pool of artists, but in fact it's actually when you look at it, it's probably a lot more diverse than the than the international picks that have been considered traditionally, totally. right? I mean, if you look at just the number of singers in Toronto. And how many of those singers actually end up on stages in Toronto? It's... Oh, I know. Well, the huge joke is like, how many singers in Canada work everywhere but the Canadian Opera Company? Right. And I think a big part of I think a big part of trying to create an identity is to dig into like this vast amount of diverse, very capable artists we already have. And I think that's one of the things I mentioned too in one of my blog posts is why not why not make that what the Canadian identity for opera is instead of chasing after this centuries old idea of what opera should be when we have such a rich opportunity to make it something that is very unique to where we are and very unique to the community's that make up the, the cultural landscape of this country too. Yeah. I mean, so I wanted to ask you about the sort of feedback you're getting from what you're writing. And and for people who don't know it, your your blog is called Vondelproba, is that right? That's right, yeah. It's at Vondelproba.com. Um, yeah. I've been, I've, I took August completely off. I wasn't expecting to, but I was like, you know what? I'm not, I'm, I just needed some time away from it. Um, but yeah, I need to get back to, yeah. uh, because I started a three-part, a three-part um, uh, thing, and I I wrote the first one down, and I need to publish the other two. But I've been getting some pretty good feedback. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the point of starting it in the first place was to get people talking out in the open, because these are all I I don't think I've mentioned anything that hasn't been part of several private conversations amongst artists and sure. uh, and yeah. industry professionals. So the main, the only way there can be change when it seems like administratively people are stuck in what we're used to is to have a groundswell of, uh, of attitudes uh, changing from the bottom up. And so the, the point of writing and putting it out there was to, to make it okay for people to talk about it in public and to be able to just share their views in public that they don't necessarily would not necessarily have felt comfortable doing. And uh, it's, it's been interesting because I don't think I can 
mention companies specifically because I haven't spoken to them or asked them for permission, but there been, there's one company. Okay. So one of the articles I wrote was about how the pay structure for artists is ridiculous and how we only yeah. get paid sort of once the shows start or at the end of the, at the end of the, the run. And so there's a company going, yeah. moving forward with their contingency plans. One of the things they're doing is to start paying more money up front, uh, which was one of the things I had, I suggested. And so I think some of these ideas are, are taking a hold the more people talk about it. And uh, we'll see. I mean, I think the the idea is that the more people actually talk about it, the more these ideas get out there, these ideas that have been around for such a long time, and the more they'll be seen as just normal practice. Well, I assume that the idea, the, the reason for many of the problems of the opera industry, I think, boils down to the fact that a lot of singers like yourself are trying to break in, right? It's competitive. You right. know, if if a company is behaving badly, however you define that, um, it doesn't matter that the artist complains because there's a humongous line of other artists behind that artist who won't complain, right? right? And it's the reason that people don't talk about pay, pay structure because they don't want to complain about getting paid in the first place. You know, it's the reason um, that people don't speak on on all of these issues i think right um i mean so by you writing it down you know it's one thing for someone like say myself to to write a few things that are controversial on schmopra because i'm no longer making my money directly from the industry but you are right and that's like that's a huge exception i think and it's because it's competitive it's because people don't want to risk their own skin I understand that, but you're kind of signaling that you're you're not afraid of these perceived consequences. And I think I try to come back to the fact that these are not things that they'll only improve the industry as a whole. I mean, yes, I think as artists, there are lots of issues, but fixing how artists are treated can be done in a way that actually helps companies and the industry as a whole, uh, because I mean, you talk. We talk about how you know companies have the power to do whatever they want, but at what expense? I think the idea is that no matter how powerful they seem, are the numbers are dwindling, audience numbers are dwindling. So this this idea that companies can just oh, we want to do such and such a show. We'll just get whoever's willing to do it for this amount of money. Um, it's just, it's yeah. a cycle that's only going to end with, okay, I guess we're going to have to fold now because we don't have an audience. So I, I, I don't know. I think on the whole, the idea is, yes, artists need to be treated well, but also here are some ways that you can treat artists well, but by and at the same time improve how you do business improve how you present your shows improve the kinds of art that you're presenting that makes it more relevant to people who who are around your theater yeah like it's it's probably hard to say that audiences 
you know, whether or not audiences care, quote unquote, how a company treats the artist, like that might not, that news might not make it to someone who's interested in buying a ticket to a show. Uh -huh. But it's probably true that there's the, qu the quality of the product is different, is something more um, inspired if everyone's having a good time in a rehearsal room, right? Exactly. And one of the other things I had mentioned was, you know, while you're, if you can pay artists incrementally instead of waiting till the end of the end of the, the period, also try and arrange a private like one hour session on Zoom or something with the director and the artist or the group of artists so that when you walk into the room for your first rehearsal, you're not walking in cold, you're not walking in stressing out about having to impress so-and-so, but you already know how how to prepare the role because you've spoken to the director about what they want. You've spoken to the conductor about what his uh, view for the score is. And at the end of the day, you're going to end up with a more cohesive production, which ideally would mean a better performance that people will enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's true that um, <laughs> I won't make you comment on this too too explicitly or something, but um, I, I do think it's true that there are people who are in leadership positions in the industry, like directors or conductors, who for some weird reason kind of like to hold their cards close to their chest and, and make their artists, I guess, squirm a little bit. It's, it's part of the fun. It's mm -hmm. part of like their job description. And it sounds very psychopathic, but it's true. I think you and I can think of at least a couple of people who, who are like this. Right. You not necessarily work for them, but I think that there's something fun about having for for a certain type of director, for example, about having everyone swarm in for the first day for the concept discussion. Everyone's going to sit and listen to what this director has to say, and that's very appealing for the director. Well, this but it does sort of create a dictatorship rather than a democracy, right? Well, exactly. And it's it's just 100% a power play and it's ego, yeah. which is another yeah. thing I think we need to move away from. And while we have this time, I think the industry has to have a critical look at all of the structures, whether it's in the rehearsal room, whether it's in the boardroom, whether in its administration, because they're the harm that is done by the hierarchy of the systems that exist, I think that's one of the reasons why opera struggles with being relevant is because the structures within which we work are not very relevant to the world we live in today. And uh, the idea that, you know, in a rehearsal room, the whatever the director says goes i think there needs to be a more there needs to be a better balance of power there needs to be a flattening of of that hierarchy in order to make it a just an equitable situation but also to make it a process that is focused on the art and not on the person yeah i mean has anyone in, in the feedback that you've gotten from your writing, have you ever, has anyone said that you're being idealistic or naive with these aspirations for the industry? No, uh, no one's said that. And it's been a big part of the conversations I've been having as well, because one of the, one of the other things that's kept me busy during this time has been my work with Amplified Opera. 
And mm -hmm. it's really encouraging to speak with that team, but also the people with, who, with whom we work outside of Amplified, just because the, there's such a hunger for change in how this art form um, operates and such a hunger for artists for artists to have more freedom to express themselves as opposed to fitting into some sort of expectation of what opera is and i think yeah. i think that just feeds into just breaking down certain the hierarchy of what we have right now feeds into that um that a more open expression of the art form Yeah, I um for for a different writing project, I spoke with Aria and Taya. Um, for my listeners, these are two of the founders of Amplified Opera, um, and they were they were among the companies that were taking, uh, especially um, at the end of May when everything happened with George Floyd. Um, in response, there was a you know. Everyone responded a different way, but there were a few Canadian opera companies that took the time and the fact that they had a pretty empty production calendar ahead of them. Mm -hmm. They took the time to just sort of sit and concentrate on these issues. So Amplified Opera had these private um, panel discussions with artists of color. Um, again, Amplified Opera is, I think, the only company I can think of that's completely run by artists of color, if that's, I think that's true. Um, and so it makes sense that they were one of those people that did this very ego-free, not housekeeping, but just sort of check-in with the people that actually mattered to them, like audiences and artists. And I mean, were you privy to some of these conversations? I, I wasn't able to watch them because they're they were private. It was that was one of the things we thought was important was that they needed to be private because there was a lot happening with um, a lot of public uh, panel discussions and webinars and which definitely are important and have their place. But what we felt in our discussing as a team was lacking was the fact that there has never been a place where artists of color can come together uh, and just air out our own experiences and air out what we would like to see without the pressure of other people watching or other people listening. And I think getting to a problem-solving uh, position happens only after you've had the chance to do that. And so part of this that was very posit positively overwhelming was to be in a room full, a virtual room full of, of, uh, of Indigenous, Black, people of color artists and not be the only person of color in the room which i like as as part of the amplified yeah. team i knew that that's what i was walking into but the act of just being there itself just made me take a step back and appreciate the fact that we do have a voice and that and a lot of the things that people shared too are things that we realize are you know they were not the only people who had experienced it lots of Lots of people experience the same things. And to just have that space to be able to to air those views out first was, was really important. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that stuck that stuck with me, um, Aria and Taya kind of relayed a few of the, the themes that had come up in their conversations to mm -hmm. me. And the one that I, it seemed so obvious to me, but they wouldn't have occurred to me as a white person in a murder storm, is I think how Aria put it, um, it was sort of the, the idea of counting, um, mm -hmm. which is sort of when an artist, you know, a non-white artist is, comes to day one of a rehearsal room and instinctively sort of counts how many other non-white artists there are in the room, and it's usually no one else. <laughs> like, that seems to be how it is. And and I th if I think back over the the, the productions, the, the work that I've done, at, at like, directly on opera, I'm like, yeah, that seems about right, like, if I think of the cast that I've worked with. Um, I mean, can you... Can you try to explain the the weight of that as it happens over and over for someone who's working in this industry? It immediately puts a lot of pressure on you as an artist because you're walking in and you're immediately representing your entire race. You're immediately representing your the you know, all the people you wish had also been in that room to have your back. And so it just changes it's not a great working situation because you try to enjoy it and i've for the most part i've been able to kind of take that pressure and then just say you know what you get what i you get what i have to give you i'm going to give 100% either way but there is that moment when it's like okay i can't i can't screw anything up because it's it's not just i'm not just representing myself here which isn't something I think most um, white artists have to deal with, but I, I shouldn't speak for I shouldn't speak for them. But that definitely is no, I think you're right. Yeah, that yeah, definitely is a big my white colleagues is very individual. It's like it's one person's performance, you know, quote unquote, like professional performance does not mean that every other white tenor is going to be similar. Right. right. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you, you have the performance and even from an audience perspective, once the show is done, they're not going to talk about, oh, so-and-so by name. They're going to say, oh, the, the Sri Lankan tenor. So it immediately has that sort of connotation of, oh, I'm not, I'm not just representing myself here. It's not, you know, I can't have an off day. Right. Yeah, and I mean, it seems to be the case even when you get to the top of the top. Like, I was, you know, even someone like Lawrence Brownlee, like, who sort of represents the only black artist who received the um, the Richard Tucker Award. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, I can imagine that, you know, for someone like him, like, I think tenors are, are a unique breed anyway. I think that there's a lot of pressure on them to perform, and there's it's it's very... You can hear it when they have an off day, perhaps better than you can hear it in a bass. I right. don't know if that's a fair statement. <laughs> but but I imagine that, you know, for someone who's recognizable visually, like someone, you know, even in a production photo, you're like, oh, that's Larry Brownlee, because he's the, the small black tenor <laughs> in that picture, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I can imagine that that, you know, he's got he's to gotta keep it up. I mean, for his own sake, but I mean, because he's a kind person, like he'd want to demonstrate for other singers like him that the industry is open to them, right? And so right. you don't want to screw that up either. 
totally. I think it comes it comes up a lot in administration as well because it's like you have you know so so many companies where it's like oh it's the first person of color who's the head of the company and then that pressure falls on that person as well to deliver being like well people of color have wanted this for such a long time let's see what happens and one of the reasons i think that's very unfair is because yes there's a there's not a white person in charge now but essentially in charge of a system in which a system that has been uh, created in order for white people to thrive. So it's still sort of a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's still a colonial system. And so just yeah. because you put a person of color in charge of it, that doesn't mean it's just going to change. Um, and I think... When no, it, or Sorry, I, I was going to say, I think when it comes to artists, it's the same thing. It's like, okay, you have a person of color, but you have that person of color who has their own experiences of uh, their own life experiences, and you're asking them to fit into this expectation of traditional opera. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's putting on opera, that's sort of proscribing opera, right? Like that's saying, this is what opera is, and we're going to mash everyone into this this form, right? This mm -hmm. yeah. And there have been a lot of artists who are willing to be mashed into that thing, you know, like I've even spoken to some of them, you know, they're not necessarily willing to to blast the companies that, you know, kind of made a big deal about them being the first black, you know, so and so. Right. If I give away the role, then I'm going to give away the person. But, <laughs> you know, it is almost part of the company's marketing campaign for that production. Totally. You know, and, but I mean, you know, the person I'm thinking of specifically is their plan is just to, you know, again, like give it their best, sing their, sing their face off, sing their best, and, and make someone, make audiences feel something. It's right. very idealistic and it maybe doesn't help the larger cause, but yeah. I mean, when you think of, of opera companies coming back after the sort of this, especially in Canada, which which is looking like about a year's worth of of near silence. Like we're seeing some plans for some digital stuff coming out of companies in Canada, mm -hmm. but you know, it, you know, comparatively, especially to you know a place like Germany or something, you know, it's going to be a pretty dull year on stage. I mean, when companies come back, like how much do you think audiences should place value on how they're taking care of issues like this, how they're responding to public outcry or from um, from the sort of conversations that are now growing louder amongst artists themselves. Is there some sort of like democracy revolution happening that, that companies should be expected to respond to? I think as arts organizations, it needs to be reflected in the art. That's That's the biggest testament that an opera company can have for an audience and I think that means creating relevant art whether it's a new show or whether it's saying something relevant with a piece from the canon or whether that means being open to not performing a piece from the canon ever again depending on what audience you actually want to reach and I think the important thing 
that each company needs to do because everyone needs to have a different approach to it depending on where they're situated is to use this time to build relationships with other with the communities they're in to build relationships with other arts organizations to build relationships with community organizations and just learn what it is that the people around you want from you and how you can best serve that as opposed to best serving i'm going to get into trouble for saying this but how but instead of best serving board members and donors who just want to see a specific type of thing um, and sacrificing yeah, sacrificing so many seats in your opera house as a result i mean so my my next big question is can especially if we think of larger companies can companies afford to adjust this way like will they lose major donate donations will they lose audience members like you know I think the answer is yes, but like how much of a risk do you think it is money-wise? Well, that's why I think there needs to be, if, if that is a concern, um, A, I think marketing, sorry, not marketing departments, development, you know, needs to to happen in a way that that can in some way or form convince as many people as possible to, to get on board with the new, with a new outlook to things. But I think companies need to be ready to give some of that up. And part of that, again, I come back to building building relationships within the community. You may not see it in the next six months to 12 months, but the more you actually dig into those relationships and build something that actually reflects the people around you, you're going to find a way to, to make up for that funding that you may lose. Um, and I don't know, at the end of the day, as an arts organization, if you're willing to do whatever it takes just for the sake of the money, then what are you actually saying? And I, I realize that seems flippant saying it out loud, but of course, you need it, it needs to be built in a way that is sustainable and just taking money from a big from a big donor, for example, to perform a show that isn't going to bring in an audience isn't a sustainable uh, uh, model. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, all the things that you're encouraging companies to do, like we know companies that are already doing it, um, but it just takes a lot of work. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not even sure that there are a lot of administrators in the industry they're not in this business to make relationships with their community, right? right? I mean, it should be, but they're in the business to, you know, put up a fabulous show or something. And that's, but that's a different job. And I think people are kind of wise to the difference of that between those two ways of working, right? True. But I think one way around it is to make sure that the people you appoint to get the work done are people who have proven to have that um, investment in their communities so that it's not, you know, like I, I read your article. Um, was it on Shmopra that you posted? I can't remember. Uh, the one the about, one about Alexander yeah, that one. And it's, you know, it was very insightful and, <laughs> yeah. and it was, I think, clear to anyone who was 
watching the situation that, you know, everything that you had said in your article about um, kind of building his reputation so that he could move on to something, Mm -hmm. something else. And there's nothing wrong with someone Mm -hmm. wanting to move on to something else or wanting to move on to something that's better for them. But I think finding people who have that community engagement and that investment in building something for the community as opposed to something for themselves or something just for their board or uh, something just for their big donors is is an important thing to look at when appointing someone. And so even if they choose to, you know, go to a different company in 10 years time, these, the, the foundation upon which they had built that 10 years of work leading up to it would have been based in uh, doing something valuable for the community. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of my regrets of not making it more clear in that piece that I wrote was about about the board of directors, because the board is is the body that could have, you know, kept right. someone like me accountable for those decisions. Totally. Um, so I anyway, I'm, I'm not even sure I, I probably should have written it a long time ago before they started their search for someone new. Um, I'm just sort of waiting to see who it'll be, it, you know, even if it's, you know, my top pick, it doesn't mean that they're going to be Superman and, you know, fix everything. Right. And I think you hit on an important thing, too, which is it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, artists can want so many things. I think communities can want so many things. But at the end of the day, it's the boards that make the decisions. And it's the boards that give someone the okay to stay on or not. And so I think that's something a lot of companies are grappling with right now is how do we how do we make our boards um, actually reflect what what society needs right now and is that as a, as a really stark opposing example is that how it works over at amplified like is there a board of directors is it so we're just in the process of body? incorporating right now so we are we're lucky to be in a position right now where we are able to give all of these things consideration because we have not we don't have a board yet And that's been one of the nice things over the last, like one of the positives of things being a little bit slow over these last few months is that we've had a chance to really think deeply about what we want to be as a company, what we want to say as a company, and also whom we, we have along for that ride. Yeah, it seems like a million dollar question to find a group of, you know, people who are in a financial position to help you. Who also have these same values because it's it's hard to understand what, for example, like the amplified team is after if you're not if you've not been working as an artist on the ground, yeah. and it's I mean it, there's not a whole lot of overlap between like extreme wealth and um, working opera singers. <laughs> totally, yeah. You know, yes. I mean, so how do you find people like that? How do you find the people that will serve you well? Like. Honestly, uh, it my feeling about it is that it comes down again to having those discussions bef- over a period of time. If you have someone that you think would be a good fit, you open a discussion with them and talk to them and you let them know, okay, what are what are your interests? Why 
how did you get into being invested in opera or in, in this art form? Here's here's where we stand. Here are the issues that we see we think we can we can address. And you just kind of try and find a good fit or as as best a fit as possible. But that all takes time, which I understand that in a normal situation we don't always have. And that's one of the things I think people just need to take a hold of right now is we we've been given this time. That's not the best way to put it because a lot of everything's kind of gone to gone to crap. But um, a result yeah, of that yeah. is that we do have time. And so if, if mm -hmm. rebuilding is, is something we need to do, and I think something we have to do or building in the case of Amplified, it's now is the best time to do it. In a more general um, sense, what do you see right now as like the role of the performing arts? Because um, the way we're consuming it is different right now. There's almost too much to see um, on our feeds, mm -hmm. but it, it seems to have a real, a real stark function right now. Um, how do you see like the work you're doing with like Fox concerts or, or this Rocking Horse recording or anything else that you're up to? What, what do you sort of see as like the role of it and how does it compare to like pre-pandemic times you think i think that so one of the things that's really wonderful for me as a as a performer with the box concerts is to hear from so many people how much they've missed live performance and with a few people also just coming up to me in tears and not even people that we were going to be performing for, just people walking along the street or going on a run, walking their dog, coming up to me and saying, I didn't realize how much I missed listening to a live performance and watching a live performance. So I think part of it is going to be and I don't know how this could translate when it comes to larger houses and larger audiences. But the idea that, you know, it's it's the it's the same set of songs that I take around, um, that we take around for the box concerts, but every single time I perform it, it's different because it depends on who the audience is, what what they react to. So how I sing each of those songs just changes every time. And being able to have that sense of community when we when we do a concert in a neighborhood and you know one person's organized it and their entire street just comes around and sits socially distanced in their yard or their uh, their driveway and then everyone afterwards is together and everyone's masked but also just chatting with, with each other and laughing and there are kids around it's i, I think we we underestimate how much the arts brings people together. And I think that's what we need to focus on moving forward is how how can we make dig into the fact that the arts is this place that it's not just about coming and watching a show. It's about laughing with the people you're with. It's about meeting new people at a show. It's about you know all those things that we usually take for granted. And I think there's something there that... Um, we can eventually land on as being uh, why, how we put across to people why the arts is important. I'm beginning to understand that the arts is not like icing on the cake. You know, you don't have to have everything perfect to to want a show as well. You know, it's it's something a bit more 
um, essential right. in that. And that's, I think yeah. that's an interesting thing that as an industry, if we can manage to figure out how to quantify um, the importance of the arts outside of the financial aspect of it, I think that'll be a huge game changer. And uh, we'll see. I Hopefully that's something that can happen. But that's the issue, right? Whenever there are there's an there's a pandemic or if ever there's a recession, it's always the arts that gets cut. But the only way to kind of figure out that issue is to be able to quantify what why the arts is actually integral to to us as a society. But I I don't think I'm yeah. talking about any problems that people aren't already aware of. Yeah, but that's exactly it. Like, it's hard to, to make the case for the arts when it's this really, you know, um, this case by case specific thing, like the way that, you know, your songs feel different for different audiences. I 100% understand that. I just don't know how to present any of that data to like, a, you know, a government body that could, could help with more state funding, you know? Right. Yeah. So if you figure it out, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's a bit of an issue. It's a bit of a problem in the sense of, you know, if if we are judging the success of a show by how many tickets are sold, then it takes away, you know, where how do we develop? How do we improve? How do we take calculated risks as an art form? So there needs to be a way to to quantify all of it and make it possible for the for it to grow as well. Well, there's your next blog post. <laughs> oh man, I should <laughs> I should add that to the list of so many things that I I should write about. Oh, right. It's it's interesting I, though cuz I was I was listening to your the podcast the the episode you did with Beth Morrison projects. And um yeah, yeah. what you said about taking some time off and you had gone camping and it's kind of like kind of how I feel about the blog as well. Cause like, I'm not, I'm not getting paid to do it. And so it does sometimes feel like, uh, you know, that emotional commitment. And then I, I put out an article and it's like, okay, I need to take a week or two off without doing any of this. Cause it's a lot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's so many things to talk about and so many things to write about. Um, but only that much energy and emotional energy left. Um, because it's the name of the podcast, I always like to ask every single one of my guests, Asita, is everything going to be okay? Uh, yes, I think everything will be okay. Um, I think it's it's human nature, right, to make the best of any given situation, no matter how bad. Uh, but I also think that a big part of that, a big part of that journey to everything being okay is acknowledging that a lot of how this world is set up right now is not okay. And, um, and I think it requires doing a lot of tough work, like doing a lot of thinking, doing a lot of open searching for how we can reshape our values, how we can, how we can reshape the foundations of, of how things, how this world functions. Um, yeah. 
So yes, I think everything will be okay, but I think there's a lot that needs to happen on the way to things being okay. Because, I mean, yes, things will be okay, but the only way to make that, make things sustainable, sustainably okay, if I may say so, is if if everyone has a place at the table and not just people with power, not just people with money, and not just people who are already in charge of the lopsided systems that we already have. So... I think things will be okay. It's what kind of okay do we want is the question.